The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Will Appleton with an episode of Rational Security for November 13th, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a weekly roundtable podcast featuring Quinta Jurassic, Scott R. Anderson, and Alan Z. Rosenstein. It's a lively and irreverent discussion of news, ideas, foreign policy, and law. Today's episode is entitled Rational Security 2.0, The Needle is Back Edition. In the episode, Anderson, Jurassic, and Rosenstein were joined by Natan Sachs to discuss the week's big non-U.S. election news, including the former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's return to power, COP27, Elon Musk's recent purchase and reorientation of Twitter, and more. This is Rational Security. So how are you all planning on spending election night? The needle is back. Apparently, that's what I saw Quinta in in Slack that the 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 needle is back, and I don't. The New York Times needle. I still have some PTSD returned. from the 2016. Oh, needle. absolutely! I have PTSD. <laughs> I I see that thing, and my blood pressure spikes. I saw uh, maybe a couple years ago a bunch of people went as the needle for Halloween because you know it's the <laughs> the scariest thing that you can imagine. And dear listeners, by the time that you hear this. Uh, perhaps the needle will still be quivering. We have no way to know. It almost it almost certainly might. <laughs> uh, I will say, I just don't understand how the New York Times still thinks the needle as a visual is a good thing. I will never only see negative reactions to it because they could do any sort of visual they want to display this shifting. They could just do a map like everybody else. They could do two rock'em sock'em robots, like boxing it out until one's head finally pops off. They could do all sorts of things. <laughs> But they stick with this. Scott, we're we're trying to decrease it. the likelihood of election violence. I well, think they should do. Know. I think they should do red and blue hungry hungry hippos. That's <laughs> just shoot just certainly, shoot marble at each other well, shaped like the candy. No, I think I think, I think for, that's right. I think for twenty twenty four they should do red and blue hungry hungry hippo eating electoral college votes. Oh, I think that's actually brilliant. <laughs> I agree, but you, can only, but you only get you only get them in big tranches for each state, so you get like. <laughs> 13 electoral marbles for Virginia <laughs> and 25 for New York. They're all going to choke those poor hippos. Natan, I am, I am curious. Is there a, does, what, what are the, what is the main uh, visual aid that uh, Israeli political watchers look for? Is there a, is, is there like a, is there like a falafel ball equivalent of my hungry, hungry hippos? <sighs> there should be. No, should be. it's just your pie charts and bars, oh, really. So boring. Oh, it's kind of just that. But sometimes there are chairs because it's all, you know, you're, you're counting seats in 120 seat uh, chamber. So 
putting chairs together. That's often a visual that's been used in the past. It's so frequent now, though, or it was so frequent. It's over. I can imagine a fun musical. You could do like a Hava Nagila musical chairs thing. (laughs) That certainly speeds speeds up every verse. (laughs) Exactly. Until the old people get too tired and have to step back. They're like, this is a young man's game. I'm done. It's always been my experience. I usually am one of those old people. I'm out. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I'm here with my two other co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And we are so excited to have you here this week along with our special guest, none other than our Brookings Institution colleague, Natan Sachs. Natan, thank you so much for coming on Rational Security 2.0. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. This is not your first appearance. You are an old school Rational Security crowd. You're good with the old folks with the walkers and the creaky music and the mothball smell. But now you're with the new hip crowd where it's all just, you know, sunglasses and uh, hip hip new cocktails and music and artists you've never heard of before. So how's it feeling so far? It's fantastic. I have to say major upgrade in the casting. <laughs> that's, how we, that's what we like to hear. <laughs> this is why we ask this to every guest and we edit out the answers we don't like. Yeah. Uh, so we're happy to have you on board. Any podcast without Ben Wittes is an upgrade. <laughs> I am texting this to him right now as we speak. <laughs> he knows. He knows. It's okay. He gets it. He understands. Well, we are excited to have you here with us this week for what we are calling the Needle is Back edition, because we are talking about some recent developments in the state of Israel that uh, you have kindly done some commenting for us on already about the recent elections held there. And we will not be talking about the similar elections taking place in our own country today as we record, because we don't know the results of those yet. Uh, so, so, so sorry, folks, looking for some less than 24 hours turnaround on the election results. We're not, we're not there with that, but we may come back to it in a future week. Or alternatively, you're welcome for not being yet another podcast the day after the election, talking about the election. That is exactly the better way to think about it. You, you are welcome. It's better for you. We are the <laughs> apple a day of non-political content <laughs> to keep you sane. So think of it that way. <laughs> But we do have lots of national security and national security related news to talk about this week, including our three big stories. Topic one for this week, BB got back. Last week, an unprecedented fifth national election in the last four years returned controversial former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to power in Israel at the head of a coalition, including several far-right nationalist parties. What does his return to office mean for the future of Israel and the region and its relations with the United States? Topic two, cop-out. The United Nations 27th Annual Convention of Parties, also known as COP27, is playing host to world leaders in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, this week, where some are hoping to find new consensus on how to combat climate change. Are countries taking these challenges seriously or seriously enough? And what are these efforts likely to look like moving forward? And topic three, everybody toots. Elon Musk's purchase and dramatic reorientation of Twitter is beginning to drive users to other social media platforms, including the decentralized Mastodon network where tweets are replaced by toots. What will Musk's changes mean for the future of disinformation and content moderation, both within Twitter and outside of it? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So, Natan, you had a great conversation with Ben Wittes last week, uh, right after the election. Despite it all, you somehow had a good conversation with Benjamin Wittes. And so I I wanted to to revisit this with you uh, now that it's been some more time. Could, could you just start by reminding 
all of us of kind of what the top line results are and also what, if anything, we've learned in the last week since the election, you know, about the electoral patterns, um, about what the shape of the coalition and of the government is is going to be and, and of what Israeli politics is likely to, to, to look like, you know, at least in the short term. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. As as you mentioned, this is the fifth election in four years. Uh, it's been really an unprecedented political crisis, and it seems to be over. And it's over because it's been teetering at the 50-50, or in the Israeli context, 60-60, because it's a 120-member Knesset parliament. Uh, it's been teetering around 60-60 for four times now. And now for the fifth time, the roll of the dice, Netanyahu, the pro-Netanyahu camp, uh, passed the 60 threshold and is ending up with 64, meaning that he will be able to form a coalition and a relatively stable one, not a huge one, but a relatively stable one. The results themselves produced actually in terms of numbers, almost a tie again. There was high turnout, um, mostly across the board, and the pro-Netanyahu camp came out only about 30,000 votes ahead of the anti-Netanyahu camp. But the anti-Netanyahu camp was very inefficient in the way it organized the parties. Two parties came close to passing a minimum threshold to get in, and but did not. Both Meretz, a left-wing party, and Balad, which is sort of a nationalist Palestinian party, Arab party inside Israel, both of them did not pass. That wasted a lot of votes for the anti-Netanyahu camp, and the Netanyahu camp is clearly victorious. We don't know yet which coalition Netanyahu will present to the Knesset. The parties will be meeting the president, the mostly ceremonial president of the country very soon. But it's very likely that it will be the members of the pro-Netanyahu camp. And that includes, as you mentioned, a very, very far-right party uh, at the edge that Netanyahu helped orchestrate and bring together so as to avoid losing any votes uh, on the far right. The political turmoil is over, but it's over with a very ex- right-wing coalition that includes uh, the most extreme parties ever in an Israeli coalition, in some respects at least. And can you just say a little bit more about in what way are these so extreme, right? I mean, I think to a lot of people, especially critics of Israel, you know, the last 30 or 40 years of Israeli politics has been quite right-wing, you know, whatever the, the makeup of the Israeli government is. And yet there does seem to be a recognition that there's something quite different about this conservative government. So can you just say a little more about you know, who are these extreme right-wing coalition partners? Yeah. So, I mean, in the darker corners of, of Twitter and maybe soon Macedon or not darker corners, but in some corners, there's almost rejoicing that now, you know, the, the mask is, is removed and the very extreme nature of Israel is revealed. Um, I think it's a bit cynical to look at or very cynical to look at it that way. There are big differences between right wing and very right wing. And in this case, very, very right wing. Um, right wing in the Israeli context does not mean the same thing as the, the United States. In Israel, we're talking, we used to be talking at least mostly about questions about of hawkishness on the Israeli-Palestinian and the Arab-Israeli conflict. And the more right-wing you were, the more hawkish. So you might be in favor of big government and still be on the right wing. You might be in favor of high taxes. But if you're hawkish, then you would usually be considered on the right wing. That's changed a little bit. And the last few elections have really been about one topic, which is Bibi Netanyahu himself, personally. You have people who are very hawkish but are on the anti-Netanyahu camp. So they're right-wing but in the opposition, now in the new opposition. But all that was sort of within the sphere of what Israelis or the Jewish majority in Israel, at least, would consider some kind of mainstream. What you have now is an amalgam of three parties, and in particular, the one that's got the most attention is headed by a man named Itamar Ben-Gvir. He is an ideological successor to Meir Kahana, an American-born rabbi who moved to Israel, 
who espoused openly racist positions. He proposed laws that would, for example, ban intimate relations between Jews and non-Jews. He openly scoffed at the idea that Israel needs to be democratic. He thought it should be a theocratic Jewish state. And he was, in fact, barred eventually from running in Israeli elections because of incitement for racism against Arabs. The, the Jewish state itself uh, sort of rejected him. And an example, the leader of the Likud, the party that now Netanyahu heads, and the person who was the immediate predecessor to Benjamin Netanyahu, Isaac Shamil, was a prime minister. He and the rest, most of the rest of the Likud and the right wing would never even give Kahana the honor of sitting and listening to him spew his vile speech in the Knesset itself. They would leave the plenary, most of them. And he was really ostracized mostly by the right wing, actually. In fact, by the National Religious Party that proposed that such views would not be legitimate. Now, a successor to Mel Ben-Gvir, one of his successes, of course, is in some ways sounds more moderate. And he, he says there's big differences. Kahana wanted to expel all Arabs. I only want to expel the Arabs who are disloyal or who are violent. In Ben-Gvir's view, of course, we shouldn't buy most of this rhetoric. He's different from Kahana in some ways. He's less impressive. And that's a good thing because Kahana was terrible. But Ben-Gvir is, ex- is very, very extreme in that regard. He had and still has a picture of Kahana in his home. He had even a picture of Baruch Goldstein, who is a mass murderer, was the terrorist from Hebron in 1994, uh, hanging on his wall until about a couple of years ago. He's a man who idolizes mass terrorists. And uh, he also advocated the release of the assassin of Yitzhak Rabin. He himself, Itamal Benville, was personally involved very heavily in the incitement against Rabin before his assassination in 1995. Uh, Benville first came to national attention when he was filmed on video holding the symbol, sort of emblem, of the prime minister's car, uh, the prime minister being Yitzhak Rabin, and saying to the camera, in his face, in his voice, saying, we got to the car, we can get to Rabin himself. That is Itamal Benville, is now going to be a member of the cabinet, the inner security cabinet of Benjamin Netanyahu. And he's in the Knesset because, um, or he's in this position at least, because Netanyahu orchestrated a union between him and what was the far right and is now sort of an amalgam between the very far right, um, more messianic versions of of religious Zionism, also happened to be religiously more conservative, although that's not the same thing at all, um, together with Benville. There's also one other small party called Noam that Netanyahu also brought in together with them. They are openly homophobic and their main agenda is anti-LGBTQ. That's the amalgam of the very, very far right. Benville is the one who gets the most attention. I have to say his partner, Bitsalis Smotrich, in some ways is far more impressive. He's much smarter, I think, and more experienced. He's already been a minister. That is a man who actually could orchestrate a lot more trouble if he wanted to. But there's, a, there's, a, there's both a symbolism and a tangible threat, to my mind, in these people having um, senior positions. You know, anytime there is an American election, I feel like I really benefit from somebody who dabbles in Middle East uh, writing and analysis, because I can always think of more recent elections with much more troubling outcomes. And, and this provides a very recent counterpoint <laughs> for which Americans can can think of their own political and electoral fortunes uh, and perhaps uh, feel a little better about them, uh, or at least understand that the, there's a whole range of potential outcomes. In this particular case, can you tell us a little bit about like what is the secret to success for this not dramatic surge, I don't want to overstate it, but this increase in support for these far-right parties? Where are they getting their support from? And what have they done differently this fifth time versus the prior fourth time that's pushed them kind of over the edge and helped them in turn push Netanyahu over the edge? 
That's a great question. And I think it's a combination of many different things. Part of it is something that is similar or in common to many democracies. I mean, we've just seen the far right rise in Italy. We've seen the far right do very well in France, although not win. And we've seen it in many different countries, especially in Europe and to a degree in the United States, although it's quite different what exactly right and left mean. Um, so part of that is just that. You have a far right whose message is kind of, we say what everyone thinks, but we, we dare say it. But with also a very tangible agenda message that they were, were pumping, which is law and order. And law and order is a bit of a dog whistle also because there's a higher, there is a high rate of crime among poor populations, and that includes the Palestinian population inside Israel, the Arabic-speaking population. And so when Benville talks now, he won't always, sometimes he'll talk about the Arabs, but he'll often say, you know, about terrorists or about criminals, and I will bring law and order back. So there are quite a few people who said, who, you know, don't necessarily espouse everything Benville believes and may not be racist in, in regular terms, but who are extremely concerned about law and order and say, you know what, we need someone a bit crazy to come in and make some order or at least push the system in that direction. And anyway, he won't, he won't be governing alone. Maybe we'll still be prime minister, etc. So that's a big part of, of the story here. There is also demographic changes and sociological changes. The ultra-Orthodox or Haredi community in Israel traditionally was not so much part of the Zionist story. Ultra-Orthodox parties early in Zionism were non-Zionist or even anti-Zionist. They believed that the divine should bring redemption to the people of Israel, but and that rather than a secular political movement, and especially since it was a socialist one, or not, not all of it, but it had strong socialist strands in it. The ultra-Orthodox or Haredi community, I should say, over the years has become more enmeshed in Israeli society in some ways at least, and the younger generation is less loyal to the rabbis and more open to sort of voting for various different opinions. And Ben Gvir and, and that ilk have been quite popular among them. Although I hasten to say they, the Chagadim, also did surprisingly well in this election. So they managed to find new votes as well. And finally, Ben Gvir has been normalized a bit. And this is partly the blame of mainstream media that found a sensation kind of uh, story, sensationalist kind of story. Ben Gvir himself is easier to digest than Kahana. Kahana really was spewing hatred. Uh, I was a kid at the time, you know, you really remember him uh, and, and the hatred he was spewing. Benfield doesn't sound like that. If, if you're not Arab, he sounds like, oh, this, you know, uh, extreme and kind of radical, but whatever. And he's been normalized that way, which I think is a very dangerous thing because what he's actually spewing is uh, hatred. So all of these things came together. And finally, I'll add one more important point, which is, Naftali Bennett, who was prime minister until not too long ago, about four months ago, was leader of the main national religious party. His exit from the scene, because he defected to the anti-Netanyahu camp and now retired from politics, at least temporarily, left the national religious scene to the more extreme far right. So Bennett was never in a party with Ben Gvir, but he was in a party with Smotrich. Smotrich was under Bennett, and they never liked each other. They're extremely different in many different ways, especially religiously. But Bennett leaving the scene left it for Smotrich to pick up. And they got quite a few votes from people who voted in the past for Bennett and probably don't exactly see themselves comfortably with Smotrich, and certainly not Benville, but didn't exactly find an alternative. So as odd as it may sound, there were quite a few votes that were decided between Benny Gantz of the center, who also had some religious Zionist members in his party, and Smotrich and Benville on the far, far right, jumping over the Likud and others in between them. Um, because of this sectorial kind of element of the vote that was looking for a home now that Bennett has left.
So Natan, I'm, I'm curious to sort of zoom out a little, how you interpret the results in the kind of broad scope of the state of democracy in Israel, because it seems to me that there, there are two sort of alarms that seem to me at least to be going off. One, as you say, is the the increased influence and presence in, in government of the really the, the hard right um, in a way that I think mirrors the sort of rise of far right leaders whose views would have been unacceptable even, you know, a decade ago around the globe. And then there's also the continued presence of Netanyahu, uh, who seems to stand for a kind of, you know, threat to democracy in the sense of, you know, leaders getting away with crimes. Uh, Netanyahu, of course, is supposed to go on trial for corruption charges, a sort of personalist leadership that leads to decay in institutions. How do you understand those threats as interacting or how much of a threat are they to democracy in Israel? Yeah, so the the danger with interviewing some liberal think tanker after an election where the right wing wins is that I'm going to sound terribly alarmist and tell you that the world is ending. And you should always take that with a grain of salt. And I'm usually guilty of the reverse. I'm usually guilty of saying, listen, you know, sort of kind of Brooking style. Uh, let's let's be kind of uh, careful about it. This time, the alarm bells are justified. And the reasons are, are I think, at least two. First, Going back to Ben-Gvir and Smotrich, it's not just the symbolism. It's not just that here you have the far right and how can it be that in the state of Israel, which was founded so shortly after the Holocaust, you can have the very far right and racism. All that is true and real, and I think very important. But it is also that the West Bank is already teetering on uh, eruption, if that's of the, uh, uh, an okay phrase, it's probably not. Um, Jerusalem has repeatedly in the last several years been a hotbed of violence, I would almost say communal violence, and the, the potential for wide-scale violence is there even without any of this. Even if the opposition on the other side had won the election, we would still perhaps be looking at an eruption in the West Bank and in Jerusalem and then maybe also in the Gaza Strip. In the past few years, Itamal Benville personally, whenever there was violence, for example, in Sheikh Jarrah, which is a neighborhood in north-central north Jerusalem where a lot of the violence began, he would go as a member of parliament, which means that the police cannot stop him from moving around freely. He would go and set up his parliamentary bureau in the streets of Sheikh Jarrah to make sure that he instigates as much violence and, of course, gets as many TV cameras pointed at him as possible. He, he was the pyromaniac of many, many of these riots. And now he's going to be in charge of the fire department. He may well be the minister of interior security, which is in charge of the police. You could not write it, right? If this were a play, you could not write it because it would be so fantastical. And so there is tangible danger of this erupting. It would exist without him and without them, but it's exacerbated, and I hope I'm wrong, but perhaps exacerbated considerably because of that. So this has some similarities to many other countries, except it's the middle of the conflict, and it's the middle of a very serious conflict, and moreover, one in which Jerusalem, and even more than Sheikh Jarrah, but Temple Mount, or Haram al-Sharif, is in the center of that. And these are people who very strongly believe that Jews should be praying on Temple Mount, and that the status quo should be changing. And that is something that many who do not care even about the Palestinian cause so much, uh, but do care about Islam, especially in the Muslim world, uh, that is something that could be dramatic. The second point is Netanyahu, as you mentioned. Netanyahu is very far from Ben-Gvil and his ideology and his background and many other things. But Netanyahu has made it all about him in the past few years. The fact that Israel went to five elections over the fate, essentially, of one person 
is should be crazy, right? The Likud, his own party, could have won the elections five out of five times, easily, had it not been Netanyahu at its head. Because Netanyahu was already on trial. He was indicted. He is literally on trial. He shows up in trial sometimes for the court hearings for three cases of corruption, including one count of bribery. And uh, that is the main case for the anti-Netanyahu camp, that a man who's on trial for corruption should not be, he's barred from being a minister, and therefore they say should not, should not be prime minister. A real danger now is that Netanyahu and his new coalition, which has shed all the sort of equivocal elements away from it, will try to change the legal structure of Israel, including passing legislation that would allow the legislature to overturn the Supreme Court judicial oversight. So at the moment, the Supreme Court in Israel, wearing a second hat called the High Court of Justice, can overturn and reject even laws passed by the legislature. In the Israeli system, when there's only one chamber of the legislature and there is no written constitution per se, there are some basic laws that are something a bit different, the Supreme Court in this hat is the one block from a majority in the Knesset um, having complete tyranny of the majority. So if 61 members of 120 wanted to decide that Arab citizens of Israel couldn't vote, or that women couldn't vote, or that Benjamin Netanyahu is prime minister for life, all things that they are not proposing and are not likely to happen anytime soon, but in theory could be done. What would stop them is that the Supreme Court would say that is in violation of basic laws and, and principles of justice and could not happen. If they pass this legislation that they're talking about right now, for example, 61 members could overturn what the Supreme Court says. That means that the same 61 members could decide any decision they want and simply reject any oversight. This would be a dramatic constitutional change in the makeup of Israel. Secondly, if, is, if they find different ways to cancel Netanyahu's trial, which is not simple because it's already ongoing, but they could. For example, they could change the main crime on which, or cr criminal case on which he's accused, which is breach of trust, which is a very amorphous and in a vacuum rather problematic crime. They could simply write that off the books and change his, his trial dramatically that way. They could also fire the attorney general. There's a variety of different things they could do. They could pass legislation called the French legislation, which would mean that the head of government cannot be tried for a while, or at least while he or she are head of government. Um, there are a lot of things that could be done. Now, that would not, unlike the overriding the Supreme Court, that would have limited scope at present. But I don't need to tell listeners of a lawfare-affiliated uh, podcast what it means if uh, a politician can get out of a criminal case by winning an election. That is, that's a dramatic change to rule of law. So here, here actually is a genuine question. Since you all are very keen observers of national security, international affairs, but not specialists on Israel per se, God bless you, how much attention really is this getting? I mean, I'm getting a lot of questions about Benville and all that, and obviously the attention, but this is number five. I mean, even I am bored, or at least I was bored until the results came in. And it seems like anyway, the world has looked elsewhere, right? There's so much else happening in the world. Some of it genuinely more important, even next door in Egypt, where there's the cop coming together, right? Um, that actually is more important. Is it true that this is, okay, one more country? This is Hungary. You know, oh, it's really bad. Let's move on. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's an interesting question. And, and you know, I think for some of us, and, and this gets into very, obviously, very personal territory very quickly, right? I mean, I think if you are Jewish, then I think this obviously has sort of special significance. And, I, you know, again, I, I, what, what is the old joke, right? Like two Jews, seven opinions, right? So it, it's not as if, you know, Jews and especially Jewish Americans are in any way a monolith on Israel. 
But I, I do think that there is, for obvious reasons, a kind of special care paid to this issue. You know, if you are kind of in the traditionally, quote, pro-Israel camp, then you obviously care. If you are a little more skeptical of the Israel position, then um, you still feel potentially attached to it, right? Just because these are your co-religionists or, uh, you know, for many of us who are not so religious, the kind of co-ethnic background folks. Um, and so I do think that, you know, sure, this may be the fifth election, um, but an election in which you have such right-wing parties now in squarely ensconced in the Israeli government. I, I do think that 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 naturally does, at the very least, pique the interest of, of a lot of American Jews. And honestly, you know, even those who I think have been traditionally on the kind of strongly pro-Israel side are also, I've noticed, quite uncomfortable with you know, Netanyahu's bedfellows if they weren't already uncomfortable with Netanyahu himself. And I really think, look, the relevance to Americans and American politics of Israeli politics actually runs much deeper than that. I think it's maybe one of the most politically, domestically significant relationships we have, maybe outside of you know Canada, Mexico, the UK, right? We have a historical relationship. There's cultural, religious, you know, family ties in a lot of parts of the electorate in the country. And it's politically charged, right? Like support for Israel has been, was for a long time, a pillar of US foreign policy in a lot of ways for both the Democratic and the Republican Party, but one that both came under criticism from, from different angles, particularly on the left increasingly in recent decades. And we've seen that begin to break down. I mean, a point, reason why Netanyahu himself was so controversial domestically over particularly the last 10 years or so in the United States is because he had first a very adversarial relationship with Barack Obama involving visit, visits to the American Congress sponsored by the opposing party, addresses that were very veiled criticisms, uh, a lot of kind of mutual antagonism that kind of kept beneath the surface but was not hard to detect. And then during the Trump administration, a very close embrace with a very politically controversial figure, praising him personally as you know an unprecedented ally of Israel, and then even as he delivered you know, a variety of policy victories for Israel relating to moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing Israeli claims for the Golan Heights, opening the door to potentially recognizing Israeli claims in the West Bank, although it didn't actually go as far as to recognize them. You know, these are big, big policy moves the Trump administration was willing to pursue that had domestic ramifications. And the way we see that, frankly, is the fact that the U.S.-Israel relationship is becoming politically charged in a way that it hasn't been in the past. And frankly, I don't think is good if you're a supporter of Israel, and I don't think is necessarily good for Israel as a country uh, in a lot of ways, because, you know, you see one major political party that is still going to have influence, even if it loses this midterm election, or, you know, it loses the presidential election 2020, the Democratic Party, begin to recognize and, and, you know, deal with the fact that Israel's policies are drifting away from international norms in ways that they're not sure they can entirely stomach. I mean, we saw the Democratic platform in 2020 expressly endorse a two-state solution. Two-state solution is, is something that nobody is that enamored with outside of maybe the Democratic Party in the United States. But it is something that's very clearly threatened by proposals being advanced by Netanyahu and his supporters. And so, you know, putting that in Democratic platform is a clear sign, hey, we have a problem with this trajectory, Israel. And this is rejecting that. And it's really Israeli voters and now the Israeli leaders saying, nope, we're going to keep pushing in that direction even harder than we have before. And I think that's a real, frankly, threat to the U.S.-Israel relationship that I suspect is going to undergo major changes. I think it's going to be generational change. I think we're talking about a 20-year window, not a two-year window, although maybe it happens faster than that, simply because so many individual leaders in Democratic and Republican Party have such close personal relationships with Israel. 
like Chuck Schumer in particular, you know, came out very clearly and said, I see it as a priority to maintain U.S.-Israel relationship. But that's not the way their entire constituencies, the broader parties feel. Um, and I think this is a, a big step in that in that gradual separation in a way that probably will harm Israel, although maybe that's not bad in the long run if you believe in other policies or you're concerned about the direction Israel is headed. Yeah, I think there's two really important things that you raise. One is the changes, demographic and political, but especially partisan, in U.S. support for Israel. And I think in maybe much sooner than 20 years, I think we've had a reprieve, partly because the president is Biden, and he's very much of the old school pro-Israel democratic uh, strand, partly by just virtue of his age. And secondly, because these things can have a tipping point, right? If if people look around and they say, oh, you know, it used to be 51 that clearly said we all have to support Israel, and now it's 51 that say we don't, we may see a lot of people who are on the fence flipping in the other direction. There's a second point, though, that is much broader than Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship, and that's the fact that American politics do not stop at water's end. That when Biden was elected in Israel, certainly, but I think in many places of the Middle East and probably in the world as well, there were a lot of people who looked at their watches and said, "Okay, how many days until Nikki Haley can be president and how do we weather this storm? Because for me in particular, for whatever reason, Biden is not so comfortable. Now, it's not Nikki Haley. Now it's Ron DeSantis. Okay, but I think there are many people who are counting the days until November uh, in exactly two years and then the January following that. And regardless of where you stand in the world or whatever, that is a very serious hindrance to American foreign policy. It means that an American administration, Republican or Democratic, cannot promote a lot of foreign policy initiatives because everyone is very skeptical that it will survive the next presidential election, depending on the topic, of course, whether it's an Iran nuclear deal, which will not survive a presidential turnover, whether it's uh, many other issues that could be even, even on climate that could be affected quite dramatically. That's a, a major problem for American foreign policy and American national security, one that we did not have even just um, six, seven, eight years ago when uh, we'd have big differences, but by and large, there was continuity. I think that's a great point. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
So Natan, as, as you mentioned, there's activity going on in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, right nearby the uh, COP27. So that's the United Nations uh, 2022 Climate Change Conference, the 27th, is convening. And there's been some pretty interesting reports coming out of it, I think in part because we're at a interesting moment when it comes to thinking about climate change. And I'm drawing here on a really interesting and thought-provoking New York Times Magazine article by David Wallace Wells, essentially arguing that we're sort of somewhere in between the worst case and the best case scenario, that both of those are off the table. And we now sort of are trying to find our way through that kind of weird gray middle zone where actually we have a lot of choice in terms of what comes next and what things can look like. So I I thought that was interesting and in some ways hopeful because it suggests that, you know, there is a power to change what will happen, but also means that, you know, what what happens at COP27 is of potentially enormous importance. So one of the the main things that I think has been flagged in the reporting on the conference is this idea of a loss and damage fund, essentially a sort of a pool of money to pay countries that are negatively affected by climate change. So for example, the floods in Pakistan, um, rising seas that are causing problems for uh, nations in the Pacific. And previously, Uh, The United States and other Western nations had been really reluctant to discussing this issue, but it is on the agenda and we will see what comes out of it. So, Scott, let me turn to you first as our observer of international politics. What are you looking for in watching the conference? So, you know, I think with any sort of large multilateral conference, like this, it's best to tame your expectations. It's not about seeing deliverables. There are always deliverables. There always be some sort of agreement they're going to come out to about new spending, new sorts of priorities, which will be, you know, treated with a kind of limited degree of fidelity often query whether like how meaningful the actual deliverables are in the long run. What's more interesting, though, is where the conversation is headed, what's become normalized and what hasn't, you know, where how people are beginning to conceive of these problems and the the framings that different countries are able, able and willing to latch onto and engage with, I think is really interesting and can give you a better sense of where policy is is headed in terms of general directions. Here, I think it's really interesting, A, the super high-level engagement. We've actually got really exceptional high-level engagement from a lot of countries. President Biden's headed there on Wednesday after the midterm elections. Uh, Emmanuel Macron is there already. We see the new prime minister of the UK is there already, although it sounds like he was there under a little bit of duress because Boris Johnson decided to show up in his personal capacity. Uh, and so, so, you know, prime minister, the new prime minister felt like he had to make an appearance as well. Um, but we see a lot, a lot of high-level engagement in a way that, you know, is not entirely a departure from recent years, but I think it's notable to see that level of sustained engagement. You see a willingness to embrace this kind of loss and damage idea on the agenda, which hasn't been the case in the last several years. It's an openness to the idea that, frankly, distributive politics, globally distributive politics and redistributive politics is part of the solution, potentially, or at least is going to need, need to be part of the conversation that goes to a solution. And then you see a lot of very technocratic engagement. Um, A lot of presentations, discussions at this conference are about, well, different specific types of technology, policy initiatives, different approaches we see countries kind of beginning to talk about and roll out that I think is really kind of promising in part because it begins to 
there's a terrible way to phrase way to phrase it, but I can't think of a better way. Lower the temperature on climate change a little bit um, by rendering a little bit more of a technocratic enterprise. Like we essentially have seen over the last few years, um, and the New York Times piece, piece you mentioned, Quentin, your opening remarks, I think does a good job driving this home. We seem both concerned over climate become more routine and rationalized and institutionalized across kind of the world and the vast majority of political parties, again, like conservative parties and most European countries, a lot of global countries embrace that climate change is a problem and it's a very serious problem. In the United States, we did, we're not quite there yet, but we have actually seen the United States as a whole make some progress, even under the Trump administration, which was kind of vocally opposed to a lot of climate change related policies because we've seen policy at the subnational stage. We've seen policy enactments happen and changes happen at kind of the at the the subnational stage and also at the technocratic stage, kind of the agency to agency stage where it's beneath the kind of politically charged kind of commitments. And I wonder if that's not like the future direction um, a lot of this climate change policy needs to move in. You know, it, it it seems like we're on a trajectory now for a variety of reasons, a lot of which don't have much to do with climate change, about reducing, you know, carbon consumption and, and carbon uh, reliance. We're like beginning to move in a direction that reduces the worst outcomes potentially for climate change in the next several years. But instead, we're dealing with really bad consequences of this, the future that we don't seem able to avoid yet. And dealing with that, once we all kind of accept that as that middling reality is a reality, which it seems like more people might be able to buy into, I don't have to buy the messianic you know, vision of, of of true climate advocates, but I also don't have to, I can't shut my eyes to it uh, like a true climate denier. Once more people are accepting of that reality, then problem, all of a sudden you're just dealing with the consequences of it. And people seem more suited and ready to deal with that, as well as implementing the variety of kind of medium to small size measures that collectively can keep us within that mo more manageable range. So that's kind of what I'm waiting to see out of this is, is a lot of small agreements and smaller measures that are likely to add up to this. I just think that's where the direction of this whole issue seems to be moving beneficially. Yeah. And the thing that I would add to, to what Scott said is I, I think it's notable. I think one reason or one reason I would hypothesize that the prospects for these sorts of loss and damage funds have increased is because people are realizing that the alternative is mass migration. And that I think is appropriately much scarier uh, for the richer and more developed countries that are able to deal with climate change uh, than is cutting a check to the poorer countries. Yeah. I mean, I think I would just say that I, I still remain very concerned. Obviously, I think we all are, but the fact that we're avoiding complete catastrophe does not make the middle ground palatable. I mean, we are we are already facing a reality today, irrespective of projections, already a reality today of major, major damage around the world and a prospect of catastrophe, even if it's not the worst kind of catastrophe, it's still catastrophe in many others. What happened in Pakistan just now is of a magnitude that really boggles the mind. Um, and I'm worried, of course, about the politics, the international politics of it, because we have a fundamental mismatch between our governance structure, which is fundamentally about a nation state, sovereign nation state that decide their own uh, affairs and, and follow their own interests, and a problem that is so clearly global and international. And so we have the COP, you know, which, which has produced some very important things in the past, but they have been so woefully inadequate to the task. Uh, you know, I, re I read the New York Times piece, New York Times Magazine piece, in part also as a tragedy of how much we could have done had we gotten our act together. We could have, how many lives we could have saved. 
now and in the future, how much migration, essentially forced migration, although forced by, by climate, uh, that we're going to see in the future in more arid regions. You know, I focus on the Middle East, but not just there, but obviously the Middle East. Uh, you're going to see millions, hundreds of millions potentially of people uh, facing a dramatic duress. And I'm very heartened by some things that happened. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act of the United States, the aptly named Inflation Reduction Act, was a very good thing. But, you know, if you went back to the drawing board and said, really, this is what you're happy about? This should have been the starting point 10 years ago. This is where we should have started. We're just so used to completely dysfunctional politics and people willing to close their eyes to evidence just for the sake of partisan gain, short-term partisan gain, that I think it's, it's just atrocious. The fact that the Inflation Reduction Act passed by a 50, you know, 50 plus a tiebreaker is really to all of our shame and not just the shame of the Republican Party. It's the shame of how our politics work. And that's just the United States. We're not the only ones. Last thing I'll say just about, I think this idea of funds for adaptation make a lot of sense because we are looking at a reality where mitigation is just is going to be inadequate. We, we cannot mitigate the whole thing. It's already here. We will have to adapt in a dramatic way. And, and we, I mean the world, we'll have to adapt to dramatic changes already. The problem is, of course, that we're still talking in the context, whenever we get to question of funds for adaptation, it's like, a, who owes it? It's a good question, of course. And obviously, the richer countries that have polluted more, et cetera. But we're, we're getting back into this kind of conversation rather than truly a global problem that needs to have a global solution. I don't have a simple answer to it. I'm not suggesting a world government. But I am suggesting that we might have to think very seriously about how we readjust our politics and how we readjust our our uh, priorities. My you know, I deal with Middle East problems and international politics and foreign affairs and all that. My wife deals with climate and climate-related uh, efforts in development. And we often say that I deal with who's on the throne of Westeros. And it doesn't matter because winter is coming. And that's what my wife is trying to deal with. So we know who's important in the family. <laughs> I will say, I mean, I do think that we can tie the climate discussion back to our earlier discussion of, you know, the rise of sort of far right populist xenophobic governments around the world, because and, and again, this is noted in the in the magazine piece, insofar as, you know, climate change and potentially mass migration is going to require a rethinking of international law around refu the refugee system around what sovereignty means. One potential response to that is governments that clamp down, uh, focus on xenophobia, try to keep people out. And I could certainly imagine that as a very bleak future. It certainly seems consistent with the the trend of where things have headed in the last few years. I, I agree. I mean, like, I, I don't disagree with any of those, those sorts of takes. But I, I do think in terms of how we're actually seeing, where we're actually seeing action on this issue that's having ramifications... It's a much more decentralized response. And I think that's actually fundamentally good. And I actually worry, frankly, where you have countries where very close, I'm thinking of particularly the United States, maybe only the United States, but I suspect other countries are in some degree in a similar situation, where you see high level proclamations and engagement on climate that it has a deleterious effect by essentially politicizing it. Because you're making it a much bigger issue and losing a lot of resources on national agenda items when it's better if you hide it in a bill about inflation and don't make it the main talking point. Um, or maybe where you don't have 
John Kerry, it's not no criticism of John Kerry personally, but John Kerry kind of trying to play this leadership role. The United States, for the reasons Natan very eloquently articulated in our last segment, cannot commit to past a two-year window. Um, what's exceptional about the progress we have seen made on this issue, which again is not uh, anything to celebrate because it's still a very dire situation, but is that it's all happened like in the absence of U.S. leadership, really fundamentally, and frankly, kind of in the absence of any single figure in a political position of power. Why is it's a very kind of popular movement reinforced by certain global geopolitical trends, reinforced by certain global economic trends and market incentives. And I just have doubts about how much we're going to be able to steer things in a better direction than that. Leaning into that more efficient method that we've seen at least so far strikes me as probably the best chances. It's just capitalizing on it. And that often is probably going to mean just making it less of a political issue and trying to instead open space for other actors to have more space to work in addressing it. I got to say, this reminds me a lot of all the conversations we've had about what to do about the threats to democracy over the last few years, right? Like, don't make it political, just sort of work it in around the sides, focus on the, the kitchen table issues. And I don't know if that's worked either. Well, I hear, I think here, since since the subject matter itself has a technical kind of real world aspect to it my general approach is all the above throw it at me whatever you want to give me throw it at me i mean the state of california is a major world player in terms of climate mitigation because standards set from california can force industry's hands but it's also many things that have happened in terms of subsidies in early stages of technology that were not yet financially viable or commercially viable and now are those are enormously important and the fact that solar and wind now is is viable even before the war in Ukraine, but certainly after the, the spike in prices, uh, is extremely important globally. Throw it at me, anything you can give me. I'll just, I'll just point that we really do have to think not only about mitigation anymore. It's not just about CO2 or methane it's, and other, other emissions. We, we really have to think about adaptation. We're already there. Pakistan is an example, but honestly, Florida feels it too, even if it doesn't vote that way recently. So we're going to have to think about adaptation in a major, major way, I think much more than we do today. And, you know, and as Alan pointed out very well, I mean, migration is the clear thing. It, this is not, we all, we used to talk about this, I remember in grad school, this would be kind of other issues, transnational issues. You have the important ones, war, economics, trade, and then all sorts of other things, terrorism, and global environment, things that we should be dealing with too. This is now front and center. It affects national security. It affects domestic politics, certainly in Europe. It affects uh, where migration is huge. This is going to affect everywhere. I mean, flooding in Pakistan. What could be more important to Pakistan today than, than flooding and, and how it can adapt to that or, or face that? So it's, it's front and center, I think. And I really do feel like it's high time. I, I, I disagree on the point of politics. I think we have no choice to go to the high level. But I do very much agree with what you're saying, Scott, about how many of the best answers come at completely different levels, at the local level, city level even, uh, and in industry and in the private sector where things can really move. If so much of the brain power that goes into making apps better uh, or between Twitter and Mastodon, if that brain power went into, I don't know, the efficiency of my window, we'd be better off. My window matters more. The, the heat efficiency is much more important than if it's a toot or a tweet. Well, speaking of toots and tweets and climate change, if COP27, we think, has been uh, a, a complicated and potentially divisive and complicated endeavor, it has nothing compared to the inner <laughs> offices of Twitter over the last week, um, where we have seen global billionaire 
possible genius, possible non-genius Elon Musk. Um, Pretty probable non-genius at this point. Pretty probable We're all making faces, most accounts, Many accounts. Elon Musk insert himself in a exceptional way and put it on full display through his own Twitter account in a way that's really exceptional, along with some very good business reporter we've coming we've seen coming forth. We have seen Twitter fire a substantial portion of its staff, including a lot of people responsible for content moderation, then rapidly see if it could hire some of them back because it realized it actually laid off too many people. We have seen Twitter suggest that's going to start charging $8 uh, or $20 initially, then $8 blue check mark, then maybe move to an entirely kind of closed paywall platform, uh, potentially as more recent reporting. All these ideas are floating around. It's a highly chaotic environment. And now we have Elon Musk going forward and saying, also, no, in fact, I, we are now suffering advertising losses. Advertising are, Advertisers are pausing, not because of my erratic and politically charged tweeting and messaging and generally strange management of this organization, um, but because of political interference by leftist groups. It is a weird moment for people who spend time on Twitter, as I think all of us do to varying degrees, uh, and as I'm sure many listeners do. And it has had one distinct effect. More and more people are moving to other platforms, including one uh, that Alan has been long been an, an advocate for, maybe advocate is not quite right, but sung the praises of to various extents called Mastodon, a decentralized network that operates a lot like Twitter, maybe a little clunkier in various regards, but still working out the kinks on the back end. Um, so Alan, let me hand over to you first, because uh, you've done some great writing on this and some, had some interesting conversations, including on our podcast this week with Quinta uh, and a very useful discussion on the Lawfare podcast. You know, tell us a little bit about what do we think this is going to mean for disinformation content moderation, those areas where we see these social media networks intersect with national security policy and democratic governance, the sort of issues we talk about, both on the Twitter side, where we see a complete overhaul of the system with a lot of questions raised, and by this shift to Mastodon, or what is probably the most likely outcome, which is a much more balkanized, decentralized kind of, even more than already was, social media uh, atmosphere for this particular type of microblogging that has become such a ubiquitous means of expression, particularly around political and journalistic spheres. So I don't know what's going to happen on Twitter. Um, I'm curious for for Quinta's thoughts. I think she's probably a little bit more plugged in on, on that front. You know, when it comes to the move to these more decentralized platforms like Mastodon, the question of what is the effect of, of uh, or what is going to be the effect of moderating for disinformation and things like that is, is complicated. Because if you think that what is disinformation is very straightforward. Um, if you think that everyone of good faith should be able to dis- to agree that such and such is a piece of disinformation and such and such is fine, then you're going to look at the move to Mastodon with a lot of suspicion because the point of something like Mastodon in which there is no one central authority, there is just a bunch of different Mastodon servers that are talking to one another and can decide whether or not they want to keep talking to one another. The point of that system is that no piece of information can be fully squelched from the network. Right. Whereas with with Twitter, right, if you are banned from Twitter, you are banned from all of Twitter. If a uh, tweet of yours is banned from Twitter, it is banned from all of, of Twitter. On the other hand, if you think that actually people are a little too cavalier in what they call disinformation and misinformation, and that, in fact, one person's misinformation is the other person's political expression that is important to get out on the public forum, then you might be much more sympathetic and much more excited about the move to more decentralized platforms like Mastodon, because that lowers the amount of global, we can call it censorship, we can call it moderation, I don't really care what we call it, um, you know, global moderation, while at the same time, letting people have actually finer grained control 
over the kinds of experiences that they that they have, right? You know, one thing that people don't appreciate about Twitter is that, you know, just as some people think that it is moderating and censoring too much, and this is frankly true on both the kind of farther ends of the left and the right, a lot of other people think that Twitter doesn't moderate nearly enough. And so a more decentralized system in which you can control your own experience more while not interfering quite so much in other people's experiences uh, might be the sort of uh, compromise that, that, that we need. But again, the, the, I think everything is, is downstream of the question. Uh, or, let me put it this way. I think everything is downstream of what you think the answer to the question about whether or not uh, offensive and harmful and problematic types of content can be objectively, or at least with, with consensus identified. And for some things like spam, bots, child pornography, things like that, the, the so there's there's not there's not a huge sort of social challenge in getting people to agree that that's bad stuff. Um, it's it's a technical challenge on how to deal with it, but it's it's there's a lot of agreement. But you know, slightly far out claims about vaccines, right, or elections or or whatnot. That that is the area in which um, just getting people to agree that that is in fact problematic is itself difficult. And so you know you're you're stuck between two options, either of which are ideal. Uh, but I think for a lot of us, especially those who are somewhat skeptical of centralized speech regulation, the, the Twitter model is less, uh, less or more unideal than the Mastodon model. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to the decentralized model for all the reasons Alan sets out. I will fully admit that I'm maybe more of a skeptic. Um, and I do think that we're seeing kind of a trial by fire right now as there is this, I don't know whether calling it a mass migration is really apt. It, there's kind of I have no no way of telling. Uh, a lot of the people I follow now have at Mastodon dot social in their Twitter bios, so that's how I'm ju- I'm judging it. Um, but there, you know, there are a lot more people on the Mastodon servers now, and the question is how well the platform is going to handle it. I've seen takes everyone everything from people saying this is way too hard, nobody's going to do it. I'm staying on Twitter to people who are saying, this is so easy, I don't understand what everyone is complaining about. So I really do think it's it's an empirical question and we'll see the answer. In terms of you know what happens to Twitter, I don't know. I mean, it really, I think Musk is clearly erratic. I don't really know what he's doing. I don't know if he knows what he's doing, frankly. I, I suspect that a lot of it, you know, it reminds me a lot of sort of the early days of the Trump presidency when Trump would just tweet deranged things and everyone would kind of go running around with their hair on fire trying to figure out what was going on. There's a similar sort of like tweeting through your inner drama as a way to get attention and force people to pay attention to you because they have to pay attention to you because you are the person who shapes the world around them, right? It actually does matter if Twitter uh, doesn't work anymore for a, a number of complicated reasons. And I kind of resent that, frankly. And and I do think that journalists learned, not perfectly, but to some extent over the course of the Trump presidency, how to think about what it meant to cover that kind of bloviating with consequence in a careful way that didn't reward it, but acknowledge the consequences. Um, not perfectly, but they—they, they, I think we did get better. 
and with Musk, I really feel like we're just falling into the same trap all over again, where like he tweets something, everybody goes off, ton of quote tweet dunks, you know, everyone wants to get their engagement on the same platform he's destroying, tons of news stories written, Elon this, Elon that. Um, and in that respect, maybe the sort of migration to Mastodon is a more healthy alternative because it's just saying I'm going to go do something else, right? Like I don't, I don't actually need. In, unlike with when you know Trump was the president, you can go to another place and kind of do your own thing. Um, so maybe I'm talking myself into this after all, Alan. It's it's very strange because we feel like we're sort of convergence of worlds. We have someone who comes from. Yes, Silicon Valley, but it's sort of hard Silicon Valley, right? It's Tesla and it's SpaceX. It's sort of hardware, much more than, than the software world. And then we have obviously politics. There's so much politics involved, which is why everyone's caring so much and why we're talking about it. But then it meets social media, which is sort of this strange kind of world. And I, I think that a lot of this is sort of this collective action that we can't really explain. I, mean, I think we to put it exactly right. It's an empirical question. We just don't know. Will everyone jump on Mastodon? It probably depends on everyone else jumping on Mastodon and how easy it is might determine. The fact that it's just slightly more difficult than Twitter might be enough to deter everything away. And it simply counts. The question that, that really is on my mind and I don't know the answer to is, can these things actually work when they're balkanized? So, you know, truth social exists, but as someone put it, I don't remember who put it, but someone put it. Truth social is, I've never been, it's probably boring because you can't own the libs because the libs aren't there. So, so what are you going to do on truth social, right? You, you can talk about how terrible they are, but they're not there to, to suffer. And similarly, Twitter would be very different if there weren't villains there. If, we, if people could yell at one another and, and have so much hatred on Twitter, that's kind of quite a central part of the point is outrage, right? So does it work if it's balkanized? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, we, we've seen news be balkanized, and that's changed, I think, the world we live in. Uh, can these things be or not? I, I genuinely don't know the answer. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question, or it's interesting to ask, given the definition, I think that's implicit in what you mean by work, right? You know, if the question is, can can Twitter, quote unquote, drive engagement, uh, which is Silicon Valley speak for make us all really, really angry. So we click, you know, endlessly and feed the algorithm advertisement beast. Can it work if if not everyone from you know all walks of life, every culture, every language, every political affiliation is thrown together in this meat grinder of uh, 280 character you know tweets, which of course is not the best way to say things in a nuanced manner. The answer is no, but that's great. It shouldn't work. You know, it's not clear that Twitter working is in fact good for society, or at least if you define Twitter working as maximizing shareholder value. I mean, I think Truth Social is a, is a great example of this, right? So Truth Social. Uh, runs on Mastodon, uh, as does Gab, which is on one of these right-wing right wing sites. And in principle, right, they could all talk to all the other instances, but they don't want to talk to the other instances, and the other instances don't want to talk to them. So they end up being kind of marooned in this weird, dark little corner of the Fediverse. And it makes it more boring. And that's great. Like, I think we need more boring in our public discourse. I, I think, you know, one of the original sins of social media was the idea that you want a global community in the sense of a giant public square where 6 billion people can come together and scream at each other, um, which again is fabulous for advertisement revenue, um, but not for everything else. So, so if the conclusion is social media becomes a lot more boring, I think that's potentially a really good idea or a really good outcome. 
I think there is there is an element of logic to it, but you know we are now swinging the pendulum so far away from the problems we've encountered in the unified Twitter space to the we were neglecting what was the concern with the internet for a very long time and still is to a lot of extent in lots of other avenues, which is that a highly balkanized sense of communications community warps people's perceptions of reality, right? It like doesn't it reinforces things in like a broad way. See, this is the thing. This is the the problem with empirics, though, because there are new studies that suggest that that kind of filter bubble effect just doesn't exist. And and not just that it doesn't exist, but that you know it 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 might exist in the sense that yes, if you know if if your choice is between having the idealized public square in which we all are speaking to each other in you know Rawlsian and public reason, if it's that versus you know, gab on one end of the spectrum. And I, I don't know, whatever left gab would be on the other side of the political spectrum. Um, gab would just call that Twitter, um, but whatever, you know, whatever left gab is then yes, right. The balkanization, the filter bubbles are bad, but the problem is that the alternative to a filter bubble right now is actually people being fed kind of the worst examples of the other side, which ends up actually just reinforcing their sense that their side is on the side of righteousness and the other people are crazy nut jobs. And so the, the problem is what we, we haven't figured out a way of building, um, of, of breaking down filter bubbles in a way that doesn't actually cause even more extremism. And until we figured that issue out, I think we just don't have to worry about Twitter becoming more boring. But the only conduits into these new networks are going to be the people who are in those networks. So it's going to be their framing and their selection of external facts that or representations of people from outside the community. So you're not creating a solution where all of a sudden they're going to get better representations of the other side. They're going to get the ones cherry-picked by the people moderating and running the community that they've set up and that they now have full control over. I mean, the reason why content moderation and all these ideas strikes me as hard is because you're trying to come up with some sort of neutral set of rules that adjust the right degree of diversity and you know accommodates a broader enough degree of views, but not those views that everybody finds objectionable. And we just have different ideas about that. There's no easy way out, though. It, I think people treating this like this is some sort of like, you know, right solution. It just seems like it's going to drift to the other end of the spectrum. And, and maybe there is some right solution in between the two. But, you know, I, I, it may be actually in like the competition between these forms. Like, you know, my sense is, is that if we see a truly balkanized environment between a bunch of gabs, a bunch of Mastodon-based kind of like competitors and Twitter, right? Like the reason why Twitter is already has competitive advantage over other social media platforms isn't because it's it's because it's a little easier to engage with, and then it's because it's intersects with journalism, right? It's the public sphere that gets quoted by people. So I think, frankly, the hub really comes down to where does mainstream media begin to look for this stuff? Like, what does it engage with? And so if it's still engaging with Twitter, then Twitter is still going to have a pretty substantial role in all this. It's not going to get out of it. Maybe you have more outlets, maybe it reduces the pressure by letting you have a bunch of sub external communities where truly ideologically motivated people, people can just talk to people of their same orientation. But like, I don't know, it just is a much more complex environment. I don't see it too easily leading to like a solution. Um, so much as just like making it look like the rest of the internet. Yeah, I think the rest of the internet is better than Twitter. I, I think it's the, like like you're 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 totally right that this is not a solution in the sense that everyone is happy. The question is: Is this equilibrium less bad than the current equilibrium? And the current equilibrium just seems like everyone is miserable all the time on a machine designed to make everyone angry and upset constantly. And if we can just lower the volume on that machine, that seems like I will take that win. Um, and I think that is the best we can hope for in the short term, but that's not nothing. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there, despite 
my general <laughs> frustratedness. <laughs> Despite Scott being issue. totally unconvinced. Totally unpersuaded. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> uh, that is the nature of the show. I think we'll have lots of opportunities to come back and discuss this further. Um, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come until we are back in your podcatchers. Alan, why don't you get us started? So my object lesson is paintball, which I played for the first time this weekend. You know, I managed to get to my mid thirties without ever playing paintball. And it is so much fun. I'm really bad at it. And I am covered in welts because man, those, when those little, those little plastic balls hit you and uh, I am a, a largish man who is not very fast moving. So I'm a, I'm a big, big sail for these paintballs. Um, when they hit you, they, they do leave a mark, but my goodness, it is so much fun. Um, so, you know, I recommend that if you've never gone paintballing, you know, get, get some friends, take an hour or, or two. You don't really do want to do much more than that. Um, and, uh, and, and, and try it out, but it, it gets the, it gets the adrenaline pumping and, you know, a nice way to spend a Saturday afternoon as it turns out. Is there no special training, no licensing? Can you just go to any paintball gun show and just pick up a paintball gun? Is this, I, how, how, how unregulated is this? this you know, I, I went, you know, we went, this is, this is in the, the Twin Cities, right? We, we went to an indoor paintball arena and they had all the gear. And, you know, I got to say, they, they, it was, everyone took it very seriously, right? You know, you, you have your rules about when you have to wear your face mask and when you have to cover, cover the barrel of the paintball gun. Yeah, no, there was no, like, people, it wasn't, wasn't weird. And, you know, you, you got a chance to, play paintball with 12 year olds who are just so much better than than you are as i've discovered it's it's those it's those quick reactions they're small targets that's the thing so. i will say i will say for a friend of mine's 30th birthday i went and played laser tag for the first time oh. in 10 years and i discovered ran into myself ran into someone on the opposing team who's none other than former washington dc mayor adrian fenty uh, <laughs> who was there playing laser tag with his with his child like for their birthday or something uh but it was the day that they had discovered that uh, somebody had orchestrated a candidate to run against him had foiled his re-election chances and so he had a particular killer instinct on that day it was really quite something to behold i was it was impressive so hats off to you uh former mayor venti uh quinta what do you have for us today my mine is less whimsical. Um, I would like to recommend a Substack post uh, from Radley Balco, who is a journalist uh, writing about crime and the legal system. And this is uh, the title is "Your Guide to Crime in the Midterms." But obviously, dear listeners, the midterms will be in process or over by the time you hear this. So just focus on the "Your Guide to Crime" part. Um, there has been a lot of sound and fury over crime in the run up to the midterms term elections um, and very little data and analysis of the data. And what I really appreciated about this piece was that Balco just walks through the numbers, what they mean, what they don't mean, what they can and can't tell us, the many, many ways in which they are extraordinarily shoddy and the conclusions that mostly that we cannot draw um, from that. And I appreciated the attention to detail and honesty about what we don't know, and also attention to how the uh, sort of political and moral questions of what to do about crime often do not have the same answers. So if you, like me, have been uh, struggling to make sense of this issue, I highly recommend reading. Well, for my object lesson this week, uh, I was torn between a lot of different options. I had some interesting food. I had a lot of fun activities going on last, last week. Uh, and I was trying to figure out what is the right thing to share this week. But coming back in the office just as we were starting, I realized what should be my object lesson. Because I am here back recording 
in the once and future jungle studio. It's not that jungly right now for the first time in a very long time. I usually avoid recording from my office at the Brookings Institution simply because I have constant network problems here for longer recordings. But so far, so good. Knock on wood. It's been okay this time. But coming back into our recording studio the first time, I realized I have neglected my most beloved colleague and coworker here, and that is this bottle of Basil Hayden's Dark Rye, which has been sitting in our recording studio for the last three years or something like that uh, since the studio. And I had not tried, and I taste a little bit, and I forgot how good this stuff is. So I'm going to make my object lesson. Get out there and try this Basil Hayden's Dark Rye. It's a very, it's a little on the sweet side. But it's got some nice kind of like caramelly notes. It's got a little bit of port, I think, in the barrel, maybe even blended in a little bit. I'm not sure exactly. It's a great sipper, uh, and I greatly appreciate it. And now, having had it, being able to appreciate it again for the first time in several years, uh, I'm 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 back on board and glad I came into the office today. Um, so that'll be my object lesson for this week. Natan, what do you have to share with us to take us home with? Well, it's a bit similar a bit to yours, although much less alcoholic. When I I come back into the office <laughs> and for the better, <laughs> come back into the office and. Used to have a lot of plants here, and what's left is mostly just the jade plants that have survived. They all started from one jade plant, and they proliferated. And when I was leaving the office when the pandemic started in April 2020, I remember my colleague uh, Suzanne was saying she thinks it might be more than a week. We might be gone for more than a week, perhaps. And I remember thinking, oh, my poor plants. Most of them are gone. The jade are still here. They don't look wonderful, but they're still kicking, and they're doing well. And they give me some hope in what has been a week of bad news. And by the time people listen to this, I don't know, maybe good news, maybe bad news. On top of that, we'll see. I will say I evacuated thinking it was going to be longer than a week and carried my whole money tree plant, a very large, heavy plant, all the way out of my office, only to realize I had parked on U Street because I couldn't find parking that day. So I ended up running up 18th, 18th Street in DC, about seven blocks with this money tree plant uh, to get it home. So, you know, there's, 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 it's a double edged sword either way if you came out of the plant at the back end. But that plant is doing fine today, uh, if nothing else. Um, well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RETL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quintan Allen, and our special guest, Natan Sachs, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 